0: This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, sorry for the lack of new content recently. Josh and I have been on vacation for the past couple of weeks. This is the first time in seven years we haven't released new content every week. So hopefully you can understand as we get ready to hit the ground running in 2023. That being said, today we're calling it a Mike Picks episode, and we've got hundreds of interviews that we've done in the past, many of which I'm guessing a large number of our listeners today haven't heard so far. So I went back, looked at all of our interviews from 2021 to pick an episode for a re-release. Call it a rerun if you want, but this 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 interview was very memorable to me for a variety of reasons, and I think you'll enjoy this blast from the past and even learn a lot along the way. So check out this interview from May of 2021 with Dr. Annalise Corbin. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. As usual, I am your co-host, Mike, and we got Tim in the booth today. Tim, what's
1: going on? I got outside for like the first time on my drive over here. Mm-hmm. It was just beautiful, so I'm taking that in. It is
0: really nice and warm, and it's it's bizarre Columbus weather, right? Last week freezing cold. This week it feels like the start of summer.
1: Feels very basic. Next to talk week about I'm the weather. sure we'll get snow again but it's such an enjoyable experience right now. Got to enjoy the little
0: things. Absolutely. And of course, you know, Josh, not here again today. We're going to fire him <laughs> is, that at the, some point. is that
1: the little things you're enjoying is not having him? No, today? no. Only I, one of us can make fun of you if he's oh, not right, here.
0: Exactly. You know, only, I'll, I'll
1: double down. For, only for one Josh. person
0: can talk about how I'm from San Diego. <laughs> but today on the show, uh, really excited because we've got Dr. Annalise Corbin joining us. And Dr. Corbin is a nationally recognized researcher, speaker, author, and foremost expert connecting scientific research with education and business and industry within communities. Affectionately called the Chief Goddess, Annalise has spent more than 20 years as founder, president, and CEO of the PAST Foundation, an educational nonprofit organization. And she is also the host of the widely popular Learning Unboxed podcast series that explores positive disruption in teaching, learning, and the future of work. And housed within the PAST Innovation Lab, PAST is a hub for innovation. PAST connects education, industry, and diverse communities to problem solve for the future while inspiring lifelong learning. And the PASS Innovation Lab is the educational R&D facility that supports students, educators, businesses, and community members as they come together to create meaningful programs and experiences. So we're really excited to have Annalise on the show today to talk about everything that's going on at PASS and her story Welcome to Conquering Columbus.
2: Thank you for having me. That was a mouthful of an introduction. (laughs) You know what? Usually
0: I have to backtrack and skip a couple times or redo something, but I- That was a one take. One take on that one. That
2: was pretty good. (laughs) So Most people
0: don't know I do multiple takes, but our editor goes back and fixes it for me when I screw it up. But uh, how's your day going?
2: You know, it's a gorgeous day in Columbus in April, and you Mm -hmm. know, it's fun to see everybody so hopeful.
0: Absolutely. And I'm going to take a moment to plug. If you haven't scheduled your vaccine already and you're over the age of 16, get on that list, go get your jab, and we can all get out of this happy and have a summer that we'll actually be able to enjoy.
2: Absolutely. Get out there. Absolutely. The, uh,
1: in-person events are beginning to book. I'm seeing that. That's what I've been testing yep. with lately. To did, you see.
0: See, did you see the Rangers game in Texas? That was a little crazy. No, I did not. It was Baseball's the worst. Full capacity. <laughs> really? Full capacity. It was, like, it was bizarre to see. I saw the videos on Twitter, and there's just full capacity of the stadium. I thought, wow.
1: I guess it's good testing. I mean, not good testing, but it, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll see very quickly, right?
0: Yeah, and that, how that affects. It, mm-hmm. I mean, I hope mm-hmm. I hope it, there's no spread there. Yeah, obviously, you know. But I think that it was just one of those moments where I thought, well, hey, you know what? Maybe we will <laughs> get back to normal, and maybe I'll actually be able to attend an Ohio State football game this fall.
1: We'll yeah, see. I kind of forget what
2: 110,000 hoping. Here's hoping. People Here's, hoping are yeah. Here's hoping. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Well,
0: at one of the first places we like to start anytime we have a guest on our show is just kind of take a step back and talk about how we got to where we are today. So. Some folks like to talk all the way back to like childhood and, you know, the (laughs) highlights along the way, but kind of just a rough background on your story and and what brought you here.
2: So I am, by training, an anthropologist and an archaeologist. So what brought me sort of this journey, you know, from a sort of career standpoint, as as a kid, I was the one who explored every possible thing you could. Right. And in in school and in college, I tried all the majors. I thought that was a really smart thing to do, you know, Mm -hmm. dual sampling. So I did. Um, And ultimately, I landed, of all things, as an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and that was a really awesome fit for me because it uh, allowed me to link my love and passion for science in the world with the idea of being the scientist of humanity, Mm -hmm. right? And so I love culture. I love exploring culture and understanding culture and just sort of the ins and outs of the way all those pieces work. And so for me to be able to pull those things together was really awesome, and I could do that in archaeology, specifically as an underwater archaeologist and the other thing that that piece of the journey did for me is that was at the time that I earned my credentialing if you will I was one of only probably a handful of women in the entire planet with a PhD in underwater archaeology. Now that's changed radically since then, but it was a journey, right? And it was a journey to be a research scientist in a space mm-hmm. that was not welcoming or accommodating in many ways at the time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that that did for me is it really, really instilled my love and passion for helping others find the thing they love in the world as their career option, rather than just let's all go to school, study the same thing, let's do this thing, let's let's go to college, let's have no clue what it is that we want to do, and then maybe hope that these uninspired individuals will change the world. Well, that's not going to happen, right? Because those uninspired folks kept showing up in my classes. Mm -hmm. And um, it was that understanding of, you know, we have this great opportunity here to think about you know teaching learning the future work the world very differently if we are willing to say the system that's been engineered for us is not really the one we want or need any longer and that's
0: then- that's an opening statement i <laughs> like that opening statement and but i got to ask underwater archaeology yeah so as someone who has no understanding of archaeology yeah. i think atlantis That's like the first thing that comes to Mm -hmm. my mind. I'm guessing that's not it.
2: For some underwater archaeologists, you know, sort of Atlantis-like, you Mm -hmm. know, um, sunken cities, and they exist all over the world, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a real thing. For me, it was shipwrecks. Specifically, I studied inland river shipwrecks, so steamboats. I was, you know, enamored with the American West as a kid. And so that was just something that was just historically interesting to me. And it was a space that, quite frankly full transparency, my male colleagues thought was a waste of research effort. So there was nobody to stand in my way. And I had the opportunity to go there and forge my own path, which is very important to me. Um, And it was an important step to be able to show those who were going to come after me that you could, in fact, be successful in this space. And um, the other thing I think that was really sort of interesting for me, from that perspective is, you know, I love my, my, my field of study, my research, but it led me someplace else. Mm-hmm. It led me to, you know, along with, a, you know, a group of really amazing people to launch and start this nonprofit called the Past Foundation that although its roots are all based in anthropology, you start with what you know, right? You know, unless you get recruited to show up, you know, in, in a field you know nothing about, right? Um, but you, you start with what you know and in starting with what we knew, we we had that opportunity to build and design something pretty darn unique. And it's it has been a really intriguing journey. So shipwrecks, yeah.
1: Did you shipwrecks. find any treasure? Obviously, that's the first question.
2: Right. Yeah, everybody always asks me that. And the answer is always yes. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: But maybe not gold.
2: Not that I'm going to tell you about.
1: Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough.
2: So buried somewhere in the woods of Columbus. What's
1: the strangest thing you've ever found in a sunken uh, boat? Mm. Or sunken vessel. I won't limit it to a boat. It could be anything. Yeah,
2: there you go. Good on you. Um, the strangest thing. Hmm. Well, I would say strange, strange is a tough or way rare. to put it. But, you know, one of the great things that I've had the chance to be part of is, you know, all the things that you find relate to some person, right? And and sometimes those folks are lost in the shipwreck calamity, but other mm-hmm. times they're not. It's just their stuff that's, that's left behind, right? And so I think that the there's the curiosity in the things, the everyday. I I, I did a project for many years that was um, tied to, to military activity, the Civil War, which I'm not a Civil War historian by any stretch of the imagination. But what was intriguing about it is the the things that people are compelled to take with them, right, when they don't know if they're ever coming back again. Mm-hmm. And you, you get these little time capsules, these boxes, these bags, whatever it happens to be. Right. And it's an entire individual's life represented in that space. Right. And so I think for me that intriguing pieces, how do you, how do you even think about that?
1: We just had a, a an art installment recently. Man, I just read all about this. I can't remember. Something in Columbus, just we put a time capsule in mm-hmm. and the mayor or the governor, maybe it wasn't in mm-hmm. Columbus. The point of the story is he wrote greetings from a dead mayor or something. That's how he started his, his letter. And being involved in Columbus as much as I am, I'm uh, kind of obsessed with how we get places. Mm-hmm. Problem solving comes from, you know, how did someone else do it? How can I do it? Take from their efficiencies, learn from their mistakes. So I see a lot of these old images kind of com- mm-hmm. comparing mm-hmm. time and that I've been enamored by this the subjects in these photos are all dead mm-hmm. and but in those photos they're like my age or mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. it's just been this strange mm-hmm. y- you feel like you're looking into the past but at the same time because it feels so distant when I was a little kid you know mm-hmm. 1800s oh my god that was yeah. a lifetime ago yeah then you realize how close they came and that they were in the same places as you is that something when you're exploring and you find these pieces mm-hmm. do you feel like not a connection to them in like mm-hmm. a weird way but does it feel like some insight into kind of humanizing instead of studying like an era more of like puts you on like a personal level? Oh
2: yeah. Without, without question. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's the power of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the, the reality is when you're looking at something from the past, whether it be a photograph, you know, a collection of artifacts, doesn't make any, any difference. Right. You're not really looking at the past. You're looking at the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you're, you're gonna, you're gonna investigate and understand. And without that human connection, it's just stuff. You know, for me, the greatest power of, of the pile of stuff is the story it's trying to tell you, right? Those are people, you know, they had a journey, they had struggles, they had successes, they had opportunity, they had failure. And you can figure all of those components out if you can put all the pieces back together and understand how they relate to each other. That's, that's the puzzle. That's the thinking about it, right? And that's the reason that when we launched past that we did it the way that we did, right? Because we said, look, if we can teach anybody to dissect any question, any set of objects, any, any, anything that you're working on, then they can figure out how to ask the right questions and you'll learn along the way. And again, you know, the potential to change the world. It's really important.
0: You're spending your time in underwater archaeology as a, and sound like as also as a professor Mm -hmm. in underwater archaeology. Mm -hmm. When, when does this idea for the past foundation show up?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, all great things, I would argue, all great things often start at um, a professional conference in the bar. Right after all the research papers have happened, you're sitting around and you're just talking about sort of the... The work that you do with your colleagues in a, you know, not so formal sort of setting. And I think a lot of really great ideas come out of that. And and so PASS was really born actually at at an international conference of a lot of like-minded folks. And we were mainly, we were talking about the disconnect um, between, you know, so what was going on with our students that were entering our programs, our labs, our field programs, because this was a, a, a pretty robust group of scientists from a variety of different fields. And so it didn't matter if I was Talking to a professor of chemistry, or if I was talking to any other anthropologist, or if I was talking to somebody from physics, it didn't seem to make any difference. There was a commonality in that, hey, we're getting these students applying to our programs, undergraduate or graduate programs, and they're really, really smart. They take great tests, their GRE scores, are off the charts. You know, and there was the common theme of, yeah, but they can't navigate their way out of a paper bag with a cleg light on their heads, right? Because they have no passion to solve the problem or to be able to divert around an obstacle that's in their way. And for some of my colleagues, you know, that, that was bad enough, but they're in environments where you can work around that with your students. That was not the case for me, right? You know, my job essentially was to take these students, right, and take them into a hostile environment and bring them back alive and do research. And so it was tough because you had these really, really bright people who seemed completely disconnected with how the world worked. It was a sad moment to realize it wasn't just me, that my colleagues all over the world were experiencing the same thing. But there was this moment where it was really, really clear to me, but we could actually do something about that if we said we're going to just toss out everything we think we know and start again.
0: It makes a lot of sense to me as someone who's gone through the education system recently. Uh, well, I guess I'm almost 10 years out now, but um, <laughs> time I'll, I'll still consider that recently. <laughs> something that, that I always thought about was there was no reason to be curious beyond getting the answers to the test studied.
2: Well, that's sad.
0: Right? If I was yeah. curious about something, I, I can't spend time learning more about that. It's not on the test. Right. I have to focus on all these other things. Mm-hmm. But it just seems to me that the way that things are structured encourages a mindset of learning just enough mm-hmm, and never exploring mm-hmm. beyond that. Am I on the right track there? Or yeah, is
2: there- yeah, absolutely. And that was certainly, you know, 20 years ago um, when we started past, that was absolutely prevalent. And I think that depending on where you are in the world and even in our own community, that's exactly what you still find today, right? And so, and there's, there's no joy in that. I mean, think about, all the opportunity that you missed mm-hmm. because you didn't get a chance to be curious. And yet you clearly are, or you wouldn't be doing this.
0: Right. I mean, I one of the, my favorite things to do now is I can go find podcasts on anything mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. about and learn. Mm-hmm. And if I could go back, honestly, I listened to Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson a lot, Mm -hmm. I love astrophysics and the concept of it, but I was never really introduced to those Mm -hmm. topics in a way that drew my curiosity. It was always, here's the math behind it. Study the math, figure out how to do the math, but not actually exploring the ideas behind it. And I think that if I had really learned the ideas and the concepts originally, and and like the entire concept of the theory of relativity is fascinating and bizarre and Mm -hmm. strange, but all I knew was, hey, you take this equation to figure out how much time dilation happened. Right. Or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. And It's just, you never really got the curious side of the experience. And, and yeah, I it completely resonates with me, but So you get this idea in a bar and very easy to get the idea in the bar. Much harder to go and actually go do it. So how does that happen?
2: Well, I drew the short straw. Um, (laughs) That's one way to think about it. I mean, the reality is everybody got really jazzed about it, including including me. And I suppose the irony was I was just finishing up my PhDs um, at that moment. And I was the one sitting around in that bar that didn't have like the full – position, right? You know, a tenure track or, you know, a lab of my own, take your pick. And, you know, so the response was, well, why don't you go do that then on a lease, right? You know, do that thing. And at the time, you know, I was pretty darn naive and I had no idea what, hey, go do that thing was going to actually entail. Um, and so, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was fairly fearless, I guess, in that sense for better or worse. Right. So we launched.
0: And when you say we launched, what's the initial product look like? Like, is it we're just going and, you know, we're going to figure it out as we go what we're trying to do? Or yeah. like, what exactly did you launch?
2: Yeah, so, you know, the first, I, I so we're getting ready, actually, in a month or so to release Past 4.0. Uh, so Past 1.0 was really sort of the first Four or five years of our existence and the reality at that time was everybody had a day job doing something else so within just a just a few um, weeks or months from from launching i actually got offered a tenure track position at a university you know in another state and off i went and quite frankly everybody in those early years that was involved with the organization had a full-time job doing something else and so what we launched was this idea, you know, tied to specifically what we what we know. So a lot of archaeology, but not exclusively, you know, and we would all come together. We would do this great, really cool, awesome project, right, that we wanted to put, that the public could get jazzed about, right? And then we would go back to our day jobs, right? So we literally would come together, do a thing, go back, come together, do a thing. And we did that for, you know, several years until we had some pretty epic projects in that time and it was sort of through some of the really bigger ones that we caught a lot of the world's attention by what we were doing in part because of the science and the stories we were getting ready to tell but the flip side of it was that we provided space for people to participate and what we learned from that is folks really want to be curious they want to be able to nurture their curiosity but lots of people don't know how to do that if there's not an easy opportunity and that for us was really important because it told us that there was appetite for what we were doing and now we just had to commit let's do this thing all the time Mm -hmm. and that that's the true big leap you know to go from v1 to v2
0: Initially, what were some of these projects?
2: So let's see. One of the first projects that we did is excavated with some partners out of the National Park Service, the first hotel in Yellowstone National Park. So that was pretty cool. It's not the hotel that everybody thinks that it is, right? It was something completely different. And so that was an awesome story. And the hotel was burned and pushed into the Firehole River, which is a thermal river environment. Mm -hmm. And I took a group of kids from a school, a zoo school actually, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we trekked over to Yellowstone and we spent weeks you know, mucking around inside this thermal river, trying to figure out the story of how people could actually come to this place that ultimately it became Yellowstone National Park. So we did we did that. We excavated a shipwreck in Oklahoma on the Red River, on the border of Texas and Oklahoma. So that was pretty awesome. And then um, we also I was part of the team that discovered the U one six six in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was really the project that I would say launched past into sort of the next iteration. And that was a big deal because, you know, according to world history, right, there were no U boats in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Well, ask anybody who lived along the Texas or Florida Gulf Coast, and they had all kinds of stories, right, and narrative about sightings during the war. And so for us to actually be able to find one and it's still there. That was a really, really big deal. And it sort of changed the way the world interacted with that type of research science.
0: What's funny about that is I would not have known about the U-boat thing, except I had just been listening to a podcast. It's called Stuff You Should Know, Mm -hmm. which I love. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the Philadelphia experiment, which is a whole thing, but it's Mm -hmm. a hoax and, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. disproven multiple times. But they mentioned during the podcast, they said, well, you know, there's U-boats that have been in You know, people thought that was crazy too, but your discovery is what ultimately showed that to be true. So that's, it's just funny to have that come Mm -hmm.
1: full circle when I literally was just listening to that podcast two days ago. Yeah. I guess, I don't know if this is wrong to ask or whatever, but who funds that and why is it? Because I know the way that things work, you know, if you're going to invest that kind of money. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what's the desired outcome from that is it education for the people that you take or you know the the what's the reason behind the funding for something like that
2: for the U166 de- or
1: any of these you know excursions like you said you took a bunch of people to yeah. Yellowstone for it sounds like that would be pretty expensive the logistics side of me is like oh wow that's like a big pretty big undertaking
2: yeah you know um sometimes they are big undertakings right yeah. and and but but oftentimes they're not right and so a lot of the different projects um often will have a government component that's quite frankly underwriting the cost of the research so you know, the research in Yellowstone National Park was all funded by the National Park Service, right? Because they're okay. looking to enhance the story, right? And so there was some cost to the participants, but it was pretty minimal. The school thought of it like a big extended field trip, right? Or, you know, a summer camp, except it's in the middle of, of the school year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can't, you know, archaeologists are really great at doing things, you know, really cheap. We thoroughly believe that bubble gum and duct tape and baling wire will, you can fix anything, Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that sense, the U-166 project actually came about and was largely funded through a combination of the oil and gas industry. It was discovered by another group of research scientists that um, had to do all the survey work before gas lines were laid across the bottom of the Gulf, right? And, you know, in part of the survey, there was this crazy anomaly. And Mm -hmm. the cool thing is that the archeologists that were on staff evaluating that anomaly, you know, they had a really good sense of what could be down there and what the rumors were and where they were and all, you know, this backstory that maybe it's real, maybe it's not, right, sort of stuff. And you know, recognize that the shape of it, it might be the right thing. And so, um, so it was partially funded by oil and gas, and then um, the U.S. government got in. Of course, you know, um, something like that. That's an active war grave, right? It's a crime scene, um, but it's also a final resting place. And so, those are um, even in U.S. waters. It doesn't make a difference. This is all sort of sacred space, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of involvement, you know, from a variety of of places. So the other things that we do now, and so, you know, Fast forward, you know, a bunch of years and we've taken students, teachers, participants all over the world to do a variety of different things. And some of them have, you know, an individual price tag, others are underwritten. And so it's it's it highly variable. You know, our goal is, you know, as low cost of everything as we possibly can, you know. So for example, this summer, summer twenty twenty one, you know, our goal is, you know, all the kids who are participating in our programs get to do so at nothing, no mm-hmm. cost.
1: How deep was that boat that you found?
2: Over six thousand feet. Wow. It was the deepest broadcast at the time excavation. Highly detailed. Um, we were running some pretty experimental arrays to be able to get data, right? Because mm. you can't put any people down there, yeah. right. right? So we had to we had to get really creative. You
0: could. They wouldn't come back, but you could. <laughs> There are yeah. a few
2: you might want to leave down there, right? <laughs> <laughs> the research vessels are small right, and you're yeah. there for a long time.
0: Right, <laughs> yeah. uh, the so I'm curious, were you, were you able to form a hypothesis of how the boat ended up down there? Like, was there, you know, any signs of what happened to the boat?
2: Yeah, it, it broke into, um, you know, I was not, so my role on the project, just to be really clear, because I was not the lead researcher on the vessels mm-hmm. themselves, so my role in the project was all to design and develop the public outreach and engagement component. So in other words, how do you take what you see down there and make it accessible to the to the public? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they absolutely, so not only did they find the U166 in that case, but they also found the vessel, the Robert E. Lee, mm-hmm. that it sank. We found both of them. Wow. And the U166 um, is broken in half. She's broken open, laying on the bottom. Um, there's a pretty good debris field, and so there was a lot of conversation initially. And there were some backstories that had been dismissed of the Coast Guard um, actually um, you know, putting charges out when when they found it, when the distress call came in um, from the Robert E. Lee, and that they went out, and um, they did the depth chargers, and that that's what caused it to sink. That's not what caused it to sink, but there's a lot of interrelated components to it. so. Did you, you know,
1: find out what did cause it to sink or was that, were you yeah, there, determined?
2: There's still some fair speculation, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is, you know, there, there were, there were a number of different opportunities from the Robert E. Lee and the, the vessels that were with the Robert E. Lee um, sent, sent out charges, trying to fend off um, the attack from the U-boat. So yeah, yeah. she, so she cool. was, she was sunk.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, I could probably talk about this, yeah. the whole podcast, so we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, but
2: but it became the launching point, though, mm-hmm. for everything else, right? Mm-hmm. And what we learned from that was so critical to sort of the mission and vision that we we live and operate in today.
0: And, and yeah. what does past look like today outside of just these, these summer projects and yeah. working with students to uncover these types of discoveries. What else are you guys working
2: on? Yeah, so PAST as a team of anthropologists and engineers and educators and artists and innovators who really, really all came together to think about teaching, learning, in the future work very differently. And over the years, it has, you know, more, one of the things that you mentioned in your opening is that we built and launched something called the PAST Innovation Lab, and we did that in 2016. You know, and at that point in our work, we had trained thousands and thousands of teachers and students had gone through our programs and... And um, we had gotten to the point where we recognized we needed to show the world what was possible. And so we built an education R&D prototyping facility, the first independent one in the country right here in Columbus, Ohio. And we decided to do that because this community is... Amazing as it relates to the resources that are here. And people ask me all the time because, like, again, we work all over the world, I travel a lot, I'm talking about these different things. You know, why Columbus? Why, why did you decide to, to plant this there? And my response is always, why not, right? I mean, we have the most amazing startup culture. We have the most amazing, innovative companies that are coming in. We have a really, really unique and diverse community on which to draw. And for us, as an anthropologist, if you think about it from that lens, we need the greatest diversity of participants, of thought, as of ideas, of opportunity, or we could never, ever demonstrate that we don't have to do it the way we always have. So I, there couldn't be a better place than right here. And the opportunity came up for us to be able to do that, to grab the building. It's 32,000 square feet. Uh, we designed and laid it out literally with if you could you could do all teaching and learning, in a space that made all applied, nothing like what you were talking about um, early, what would that look like? Because mm-hmm. when we talk with communities around the world about, hey, you you don't have to do school the same way. One of the things that I would hear over and over again is, well, I, I can't even imagine what you're talking about. Okay, well, so clearly I need to show you. Mm-hmm. So we made the decision to do that.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes because I think that, for me right i would love to see a future in which my future children would be able mm-hmm. to learn like that mm-hmm. i think it would be great to continue to explore curiosity because i think that i mean as a group and as a whole i think humans in order to continue to progress, we need to we need to really look at the way we go about learning and educating because if we stagnate it's because we're not educating properly we're not encouraging
1: that curiosity i think that's a big uh, a big reason that Documentaries have become so popular. They've always been mm-hmm. a thing, but mm-hmm. it showcases passion of one person mm-hmm. and it allows you to learn. So My favorite part of a documentary is, I love how excited the person is that's telling the story. You spend three to five years figuring out everything and then tell me in about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I'll get what I need to know. I like feed off your passion and whatnot. Uh, my experience from school was very different than yours. I didn't go to, you know, I got Mm -hmm. everything that I, that I got in trouble for as a younger person, I now make money from and people pay me (laughs) to teach them how to do, but at the time it was, it was bad. Right. And so, you know, the things that, and you see this a lot, I had a lot of friends that that Mm -hmm. went into athletics, thought I was going to be an athlete. I clearly did not do that well, but you know, make a ton of money, but they don't know how taxes work or right. and just the ins and outs of just basic life right you know, they know how to do long division but they don't know how to do like mm-hmm. what what is my tax bracket right so seeing schools adjust to to teach like real life skills and then let people flourish with like what they're passionate about mm-hmm. right so if you mm-hmm. want if you were telling your sixth grade teacher you want to go study sunken boats she would have told you to get a real job you know or mm-hmm. all that stuff so i think that like what you're talking about mm-hmm. is, exactly. is feeding into the passion and finding a way to to build on that. Like I'll sit down and watch, I'm watching a docu-series right now about something I knew nothing about and now and I'm learning more because it's interesting mm-hmm. and it didn't take me a four years of college to you know, beat that into me, right. I did it myself. And so I think if you can tap into that passion, because everybody's curious, everybody is, but find something that they're willing to spend their time on and make it fun and tap into the passion. You can, you can end up with hordes of storytellers that are able to also do normal jobs or, Mm -hmm. you know, and also advance in ways that need advancement.
0: Yeah. I think the important thing is teaching people, not the content you teach them, but teaching people how to learn and then letting them go Mm -hmm. and explore whatever they want. Right? Like once you know how to learn, then the world we live in today, we have so much a wealth of information available to us at the, I mean, I could pull up on my phone and, and Read about just about anything. Mm-hmm. But if you know how to learn, you can explore all that.
2: Many schools, not all schools, I want to be really fair, right? Um, there's some really amazing things that are happening around the, the country and around the world, um, in this space. But the reality is many, many, many of these schools are still trying to teach all the stuff that's in that phone, right? Mm-hmm. You can look up just about anything, right? why are we spending any time trying to teach mm-hmm. the stuff that's in there when we should instead be teaching everything that it doesn't know mm-hmm. or that it can't know yet? If we can do that, then we can solve all kinds of things. And people will be, to your point, passionate because they're so interested. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet we still are just teaching the stuff that, quite frankly, is you know hanging out in the phone in your back pocket, which, you know, Many, many people have today.
1: We have to get past the I've always done it this way or we've always done it this way. That's my biggest, (laughs) grandma's pot roast. Biggest (laughs) experience moving into like the, I don't know, I don't want to call it corporate world, but like the employment world Mm -hmm. is people just do stuff because they've done it that way. And that challenge of that is met with such resistance, regardless of the data that can Mm -hmm. support it. So the school system falls to that. We've always done it this way as well. I'm not saying I could fix it. Right. But it did mean no favors whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I think we could make people's lives a lot easier and help them find that passion quickly rather than like fighting with them and trying to, you know, put them on this track that has proven to not, not be so great. Well, and,
0: and as much as we're talking about how not great it is, I think we are heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think we see a lot of people pivoting and we see people realizing that, Hey, you know what? Maybe the system isn't ideal. So I'm excited to see where it goes in the next, you know, five to 10 years. But doctor, what are some of your goals moving forward for the past foundation? What do you see on the horizon mm-hmm. for your team?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question, and that's one that we have been wrestling with a lot internally. So I think that there are a few sort of fundamental things for us. We really are to the point in our evolution as an organization and the things that we have learned along the way, right? And it's been a really steep learning curve. You know, if you step back and think about the fact that the majority of our team, we are not traditional educators. We have teachers our educators on our staff, but the majority of the staff didn't come from that world, and I think that that gives us a great advantage because we ask a completely different set of questions. So we don't ask why is it failing or why is it broken. We ask instead, well, what should it be doing now? Mm-hmm. And so for us, for the future, it's really around that proof of concept. You know, can we, in fact demonstrate that if we literally disconnect the day-to-day teaching and learning from the testing outcomes that you're looking for, that we can actually get our students in an environment that we could create to excel beyond the norm, right? So that I don't have to bother trying to teach the test, but I can give you a test. And, and testing is important, don't get me wrong. You have to be able to have data to, to show fidelity that mm-hmm. something's going to work. It's critical, But what if we could get there without ever having to sit down to prep for that test, but instead have confidence that I can teach you everything you need to know to to move on and to persist because of your natural curiosity for you to get there. And all I have to do is stand beside you and facilitate your journey.
1: I think it's a hard skill to find in people too. I think a lot of people have that but their natural tendency has been beaten out of them. Yeah. So they, they're like scared to mm-hmm. do it. When I'm working with people lately, I, I want to see a little bit of the way that I found the, that it works. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing if they have what it takes without telling them what it takes. Mm-hmm. And you'll see them scared to get outside of it. They're like, this mm-hmm. is the, what I feel maybe should be. And and like, don't, don't want to question. I'm not giving right. very good examples, obviously, but I feel like that's been beaten out of people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if we could tap into, it's not, it's not so rare that, Someone could think outside the box, whatever cliche you want to use, but see a problem and then think, oh, why don't we do it this way? They're like scared because it's safer to just be like, oh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to speak up, mm-hmm. especially if you're wrong. Yeah. And that's the best way to fix stuff is just trying and then using that data. Mm-hmm. I love that.
0: And I think ultimately it comes down to all of the great discoveries, all of the great breakthroughs in the history of the world have come from people who were not willing to say, well, this is just the way we've always done. They yeah. ask the questions mm-hmm. that most people would look at and say, why are you but even why? asking that?
1: Right, yeah. right. right.
0: Yeah, the but why.
1: Yeah, I love that question. We have to, (laughs) but why.
0: And we have to encourage that type of thinking.
1: And if you can answer that question with a legitimate answer, then sure, we'll go move on. But if you're doing something inefficient and somebody asks you why and you just don't have an answer, then that's not good enough.
0: No, we can't accept that anymore. But nope. Gonna pivot with a more random question here. And so, on at least why? starting with why, (laughs) why the chief goddess, what does the chief goddess
2: mean? Yeah. So everybody at past, um, gets to choose their meta title. That's a thing for us. And so the why of that is because you know, in my mind it was really really important that you sort of tap into your your hidden superpower or your thing that you're passionate about or this aspiration that you have and that the work that we do at past isn't one dimensional. I can't slap a label on you and say your job is x. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't work that way. at pass. Everybody wears about a thousand different hats, right? We're a small organization and we innovate and iterate so fast. And in fact, we've lost people. They said, I can't work here. It's too, it's too frenetic. It's too, it's too fast paced. It's not, you know, I, I need, I need my lane. So I have nowhere to stay. Yeah, it's safe. It's safe. And that's not who we are. And so when you come in the door, one of the very first exercises is, what's your superpower? What's the thing you want to offer? And so what, for me, the the whole idea of chief goddess was two parts. So one piece of it was really, really important for me to stand up and say to the world that, you know, as a woman, I can lead and I can lead with anything i imagine and you know the goddess component of it the flip side of it was from a purely sort of anthropological standpoint it was you know you have the ability to think and move so that component of it was really just to say i'll stand with you and i'll fight the battles for you i'll i'll be the goddess mm-hmm. standing you know wherever so that the staff can go out and do the amazing work that they do without having to fight the battles that come or get in the way. I think maybe that's the best way for me to explain it, but we have every kind of superpower you could imagine at best.
0: I love it. I love it.
2: Jim over here is the sultan of systems.
0: The sultan of
2: systems. Well, if you
0: you guys don't don't know, (laughs) Jim's here taking photos and capturing the moment. Do you
1: ever run into people that you try to work with just being confused?
2: Yeah, but you know what? Here's the fl- <laughs> so, Here- what the hell do you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's the flip side of this, right? So this again just put my anthropological hat on and this is me chuckling all the time, right? Because you know, we've all done it. We go into these stodgy corporate meetings, you're meeting all these people, having great conversations, everybody's sitting around a boardroom, and you see everybody sort of do the card shuffle, right? We we've all been in that space. And the reality of it is nothing much ever gets accomplished in those environments. More often it doesn't. And one of the things I learned really, really early on is that because my business card actually says that I'm the chief goddess on it, right? And you pass the cards around and just sort of watch. And there will be people at the table who will take the card, put it in their bag, put it in their pocket, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And there'll be people that actually look at it and they'll chuckle. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? I'd be like, what the hell does this mean? Well, Tell me now. And, that and, would be my response. And that would be
2: awesome. And very few people actually ask, right? But I will have people that, you know, around the room that'll chuckle. And it's just one of those cues, right? So that's a person who's already interested in what you have to say before you've ever opened your mouth because they took two seconds to try to understand something about you ahead of time. And that's a really, really powerful tool.
0: And going back to our. But one of the main topics we've talked about today, curiosity, mm-hmm. people who are curious are going to look and see what says on that card.
2: Yeah. And they're going to engage with you. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that in those settings, that's the person I will talk to the whole meeting, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, you'll acknowledge through your conversation, but you very quickly say that person right there is invested in what we're going to be imagining.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Corbin, I think, uh, you know, this is a great place to kind of head towards our last question of the show, but it's been great talking to you so far. I've really enjoyed it. The last question of the show is centered around the theme here Mm -hmm. on Conquering Columbus. And our theme is live uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career?
2: You know, what I gather from that is that you have to be willing to just be out there on the edge. You have to be comfortable not knowing, not having had an experience and just, you know, saying, hey, I'm capable of doing whatever it is that I need to do. So in my own mind, you know, it ties right back to one of the things that, that are really meaningful to us at past, which is going to link learning to life. Right. And if I'm uncomfortable, I am wicked learning.
0: Wicked learning. I like it. Wicked learning. Dr. Corbin, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate
2: it. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: And everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that episode, you want to hear more just like it every week.
1: Don't forget that Mike's from San Diego. I don't know if you got that. Don't forget I'm
0: from San Diego. And also hit that subscribe button. You'll get interviews like this every week with all the incredible people around our great city. We'll talk to you next week.